Here at Grace, we practice what is called expository preaching, which is um, quite simply verse-by-verse in-depth study and preaching of God's Word. We look at every single verse, uh, if not every single word. As we do that, there are not many, if any, really substantial uh, drawbacks to expository preaching. Uh, If there is one, I would say that if there's a particular passage you're curious about, or if there's a particular issue that you need guidance on from Scripture and are waiting for a sermon, it could be months, if not years, before we get to that actual passage, which is why here at Grace we take several times a year to answer questions that you may have and you've submitted ahead of time. We do that whenever there are five Sundays in a calendar month, which happens this May of 2022. And uh, so I'm going to answer some questions uh, for you. Uh, For those who are visiting, if you're interested in hearing what a normal service is like, we invite you to come back uh, next week, or you can jump online where um, all of our sermons are archived. Because of our Q&A tends to be a little less of a formal time, I don't like to uh, often... Uh, take pulpit time to address personal issues, but because it's a little less formal, I do want to wish my wife a happy birthday. It's her birthday today. Well, I got a lot of questions this time around, so let's jump right in. Question number one. Um, Christians should not swear or curse Jesus' name or any other cursing Uh, according to what book in the Scripture. So uh, in terms of cursing or profanity or taking the Lord's name in vain, which is how we put it biblically uh, from the Old Testament, uh, we understand that taking the Lord's name in vain is prohibited in the Ten Commandments. Uh, We also know that as New Covenant believers, we only adhere to the Ten Commandments that are repeated Uh, within the New Testament. So I want to give you a few verses that uh, will help you in your uh, speech or language, if we could put it that way. Would you turn with me to Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Uh, I'm going to go a little quicker this morning because we do have a lot of questions. And so uh, if you can't get there in time, just listen. Ephesians 4, 29 is a great passage. It is the verse, uh, if you struggle at all, Uh, with your words, not just in profanity, but in encouraging other people, being uh, biblically positive, if I could put it that way. Paul writes, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification or building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And so we are called to use our words to build up other believers and unbelievers. Obviously, within this context, that would be with Scripture, uh, not that which is politically correct or social norms, but with Scripture. And it says, only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. We understand that even in our speech, there is a time and place for everything. And so even though what you say may be biblically accurate, it may not be edifying in that circumstance. For example, as a pastor, uh, I officiate funerals. And sometimes I've done that for some of your unbelieving uh, relatives. It is true that they are not in heaven, but that is not the time to say that. Do I preach the gospel? Absolutely. 
always, but I don't need to make an explicit uh, mention, oh, by the way, your dad is not in heaven. That's not according to the need of the moment, you understand. Um, Go ahead further to chapter 5 in Ephesians, verses 3 and 4. It says, immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, believers. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. There it is. Everything we say must be in accordance with God's Word. It must be for building up and it must be saturated with giving thanks. Let's start with profanity. Why do people generally use profanity? Tearing down, negative. It's not positive speech. It is not just... I mean, when society is never the, our gauge, right? Scripture is. But when you have something that even society deems negative and Christians say, oh, we should still do it, when the Bible and society say it's bad, say, well, people swear all the time. Sure, but even... Children, my children all in elementary school would get in trouble. They don't swear. Some of their classmates do. They get in trouble for doing that. They know it's not appropriate. You watch TV shows. If there's profanity, they will warn you. Don't show this to your kids, okay? And so even uh, we understand, and, and I say that because sometimes we say, well, it's not really tearing down if it's just the norm in society. But even society would say, well, hey, that's tearing down. That's not appropriate. Right. James 3, 9 through 12 speaks more, uh, speaks to this issue, but also to the issue of taking the Lord's name in vain. And it speaks of the tongue, James chapter 3. Speaking of the tongue, it says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? You you see the picture there? A fountain either has fresh, clean water that you can drink or it's bad water that will poison you. You don't have the same from the same spring, right? We know that's a good spring, that's a bad one. And so he's likening that to our mouths, our tongues. You can't worship God and praise Him as a believer and then the next minute taking the Lord's name in vain or swearing or tearing people down. And then he goes on with another illustration. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. We are believers. We are not to produce that which is bitter, that which is nasty. Ultimately, this is more than just disciplining your tongue. This is an issue of the heart. And so what this passage tells us is it also refers to uh, using the Lord's name in vain. And that would be any time you are using the Lord's name, any of them, God, Jesus, Lord, any of His names, in a way that is not speaking about Him, like God did this, or reading Scripture, or addressing Him directly in prayer or worship or song, or three, or worshiping Him. Outside of those, you're taking the Lord's name in vain, and it is not appropriate. And sometimes we can think that, well, people do it, right? I, I personally, I don't think we should even see, say OMG. Because if I were to, for example, clearly 
in an attempt not to use a four-letter word, use its more acceptable counterparts, but in a clearly angry way in a sermon, you would have problems with that too. Because you know what it means. You know what it represents. This is your God. I like to put it this way. Would your spouse or someone you love very dearly, would you be okay if someone said, I'm just going to say their name whenever I'm angry now. I'm going to use your spouse's name as a word for my anger, as a way to put people down, as a way to indicate something is negative or bad, like people use the Lord's name in vain. You'd be like, no, don't do that. That's very rude. Why would you do that? How are we okay doing that with our Lord and Creator? Okay. Question number two. Should Christians pray before eating? Praying before we eat, as American Christians do, is not explicitly commanded In other words, we don't have a command in the New Testament saying, pray before every meal. However, we do have a pattern set for us by Jesus as well as the apostles. Before his two miraculous feedings of the 5,000, Matthew 14, and the 4,000, Matthew 15, Jesus gave a blessing before passing out the food, before eating. Even after being resurrected on the road to Emmaus that we saw last week, Remember, Jesus ended up coming alongside those two disciples. He hid himself in some way, so they didn't know who he was. He's talking to them. They're explaining what had just happened, and then he explains from the Old Testament. At the end of that, they sit down together and eat some fish, Luke 24. And before that, Jesus blesses or prays for the food. Even at the Last Supper, where he institutes the Lord's Supper, communion, He blesses the food. He prays before the food. We have Paul doing the same thing in Acts chapter 27. That being said, you are not in sin if you forget to pray before your meal one time or a few times or if you don't do it at all because it's not an explicit command. However, you are commanded to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us to pray without ceasing. That is in a practical way impossible. Quit your jobs, don't sleep, don't speak to your children, just pray all the time. That's not what that means. What that means is you should be in a mindset and a heart attitude that you're always in communion with God. And the way I like to put it is if you're going on a long walk with someone, you meet at the park, hey, how you doing, how you been, and you start taking a walk through the park or whatever it is, and, and you're having a conversation, and then you have that awkward silence, right? And so maybe there's five minutes where you guys are just walking and not a word is being said. You're looking at the view or you're getting on your phone or whatever it may be, and then you think of something, you want to start the conversation again. You don't need to go, hey, how you doing? How you been? You just start talking because you're in that conversation all the time, even though there are pockets of silence, for example, when you're working, when you're sleeping, when you're talking to your children. Obviously, we know from the Scriptures there is a time where you would go through the time of praise and addressing God in a more formal way, but we also know that at any point, you know, hey, boss wants to talk to you. Oh, Lord, help me, please. Help me be patient, right? 
It's just a quick, we call those arrow prayers. That's praying without ceasing. Now, it's a great pattern to pray before your meals because if we are to pray without ceasing, what better time, what better uh, habit, I should say, in our busy schedules than to say, well, I want to make sure that I'm praying at regular interval, intervals throughout the day. How much more convenient than the three times that you stop whatever you're doing anyways to eat and then thank the Lord. But if we want to follow Christ's pattern and the apostles' pattern, when we pray before we eat, we are praying for the food and that's it. That's not a time to catch up on your prayer life, right? You know, sometimes people do that. You know, you hang out with people and someone volunteers to pray before the meal. They pray for like 10 minutes, right? And I always joke when they say amen, and you forgot to pray for all the missionaries of the world, right? That is a time in your, your prayer closet, as it were. The pattern of Scripture is that when we pray for our meals, we're praying for that meal. I do want to give you a warning. In the Christian life, especially with things like this, things become rote. Things become almost legalistic. Thank you, Lord, for this meal. Bless it to our bodies. And you just do that because you want to be an example to your kids or just the thing you've always done. And you're not truly thankful for that meal. Right? We pray. We, we, oh, hurry up. Let's, a waiter's coming. Let's pray and thank God for this meal so I can complain about it before she leaves. Right? When we pray, we have to mean what we pray, and so you need to be careful that you're not just praying because that's what we do before we eat. Actually be thankful, think about what you're praying and who you're addressing. Question number three. In small group, someone commented that to repeatedly pray for something seems to indicate a lack of faith or trust in God, likening it to nagging. This brought to mind the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18 which seems to encourage repeated and persistent prayer, is there a limit or danger to praying for the same thing repeatedly? Well, let's look at Luke 18 and let's look at this parable that's mentioned in the question because in a lot of ways that answers the question. Luke 18, 1 through 8 is where the parable is found. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, God, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? The point of the parable is in verse 7. By the way, as a side note, the parables always have one main point. We don't look at every aspect of the parable. Well, what about this? What about this? There's always, Jesus is always making one main point in a parable. 
And here we find it in verse 7. And it is this. If a human judge who, he says, doesn't even care about people, doesn't care about God, will give what you want after consistent asking, how much more will God? You also have the parable in Luke 11 in which someone keeps knocking on the door. He keeps knocking. It's the middle of the night. The neighbor won't come, so he keeps knocking and knocking and knocking until the neighbor wakes up and gives him what he wants. So these two parables, the Bible, encourage us to pray repeatedly for the same thing. There is no limit. The the only limit would be when it actually contradicts reality or Scripture. What do I mean by that? For example, if you're praying for something, praying for something, praying for something, a certain event to go well, and the event is over, you can't pray that God will change the past. If you're praying for someone's salvation day after day after day after day, as I have prayed for many of my relatives every single day for the past 33 years, I can't keep praying that after they're no longer alive. So that, that's what I mean by that, but I don't think you, you guys would do that. So as we pray repeatedly, though, we also need to keep in mind the basic principles of New Testament prayer. There's many of them, but I'll give you some big ones. Praying within God's will, right? James 4.3, 1 John 5.14 tell us this, right? You don't pray for things that God specifically clearly doesn't want. So praying within God's will, and part of that is making sure your heart is right within God's will, because when you do that, you're not going to pray for things that are not within God's revealed will, right? We need a Hebrews 4.16, we need to pray with humility, we need to pray with trust, we need to pray with submission, and we need to understand God's character, that He is sovereign, that He is in charge, and that there's that, that place in heaven and where our, our choice, our free will, as people call it, in praying and God's sovereignty meet in a way that is illogical to our human minds, but it exists. So we know that if we pray and we pray and we pray, we are obeying God because He commands us to pray with trust. And if He eventually gives us what we pray for, it's not that we've changed His sovereign will, it's within His sovereignty that that was to happen, and yet we are to be faithful to pray and pray and pray. And I would also remind us that uh, no is an answer. Sometimes God says no, not audibly, of course. He doesn't give us what we ask for. And we say, well, God hasn't answered my prayer. Maybe He has, and the answer is no. But again, if you're praying within God's will for someone's salvation or your spiritual growth, whatever it is, you keep praying because it may just be no, not now, not yet, okay? So going back to how uh, what was mentioned in the actual question So all of these principles of prayer would be the difference between biblical prayer and nagging. Nagging is more about finding fault. It's more about complaining or demanding or trying to change people's way in a a way where you humiliate them and you you, uh, disrespect them, okay? That's what nagging is. We want to make sure we're not doing that with God. 
And that's why you, you see how that's a principle that we see in scriptures, especially in the Proverbs uh, regarding uh, mostly wives toward their husbands, right? It's this degrading, uh, sinful attitude. So it's very different than biblical prayer. Uh, question number four. Is being, quote, buzzed from alcohol a form of drunkenness? I think this question assumes that we understand that being drunk with alcohol or drugs is a sin. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So being drunk is sin. And so the question is, is being buzzed a sin as well? Is being buzzed drunkenness and thus sin? Uh, honestly, I, I feel like this is, having established that being drunk is sin, this would be more of a medical or perhaps even a legal question than a theological one, because how do you define what buzzed is? Now, I've interacted with people who are clearly drunk and like, man, I'm so buzzed right now, okay? And I think people would define it differently based on personal experience, um, but it probably helps to understand that the technical definition this is not my definition. This is not a biblical definition. This is a technical definition. You can Google it if you want. Of being buzzed is being drunk or under the influence of a drug. So there you go. But going back to Ephesians 5.18, he says, don't get drunk with wine for that is dissipation. But, and again, repentance is always put off and put on. What's the put on? But be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? For a believer, the Holy Spirit resides in us. What is that talking about? It's talking about obeying the Holy Spirit, being under His control in terms of spiritual walk and obedience, as opposed to being drunk, which is a lack of self-control. It says rather than having no control, even rather than just being controlled by yourself, you need to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. That is His conviction, His leading, His Word. And so, whether it's buzzed, whether it's drunk, whether it's being overly emotional, whenever you are out of control, you are not being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's something we need to be careful of. Whatever keeps you from living in submission to the will and guidance of the Holy Spirit is to be avoided. Obviously, temptation to sin is a big one there. So, even if your definition of buzzed means you're in control, okay, so let's say you're getting rid of that and say buzz is just when I feel funny or whatever, I'm not drunk, I feel like I'm still in control. Why go there? we're never told to get as close to sin as possible and see how strong you are, right? Th this is a little graphic, this illustration, but there is nothing sinful about eating chicken wings at a strip club. But why would you go there to have a dinner? It doesn't make any sense, right? Why would you play with that? Why would you get close to those types of of things. All right, so be careful um, with alcohol, drugs, all of those things. Question number five Do believers who commit suicide still go to heaven? The key in this verse is believers. 
If a believer is a believer, there's nothing that can make them lose their salvation. Romans 8, 38 through 39, one of many verses we could go to. Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, death, okay, death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not the universal love of God that He has for everyone. This is salvific love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can make you lose your salvation. There are other uh, religions that believe that you know, if you're saved, if you're right with God, if you commit suicide, you go directly to hell or purgatory. That's not biblical. If they are a true Christian, they are going to heaven. Whether it's rapture, whether it's death, you can't lose your salvation because you choose to commit suicide. That being said, I must tell you that because the Christian life is all about God, all about God, serving God, not self, trusting God in circumstances so it doesn't matter if I'm rich or poor, happy or not, because I know God is sovereign, it's not about anything in this world that changes. Family, sickness, friends, material, wealth. God doesn't change. He doesn't stop loving you. You don't lose your salvation. So if someone is so focused on that, chances are they will not get into such a position and depression that they would want to take their own lives. Because it's not about them, it's not about revenge, it's not about whatever, they're just about God who never changes. Do I believe there are genuine Christians who are in heaven right now that committed suicide? Yes, I do. Unfortunately, some pastors have done this. But I also believe, because of the theme of the Christian life, we do have reason to question if someone was a true believer in the first place, were they to be so uh, outside and uh, ignoring God's provision and love and grace that they would choose to take their own lives. In many ways, our society has influenced how we think. And I don't think this is one of the biggest ways because suicide is more common than it should be, but it's not very common. But it has influenced our thinking in that there has been a shift in the last couple of decades, especially with the rise of the diagnosis regarding men mental health, that when people commit suicide, it's almost a situation where it's, what's wrong with us? Poor him. As if they had no choice. Okay, this isn't car accident. These aren't, you know, that's not suicide. They had a choice. And I don't want to in any way demean what these people are going through. And I definitely don't want to keep any of you to seeking counsel from me or anyone else who's a believer if you are thinking that way. However, as those who may be approached for counseling, we cannot try to just stroke their egos and say, oh, it's going to be okay 
everything's fine, that's actually adding to the problem. That's why they wanted to do this in the first place, because they're looking at circumstances rather than God. We need to point them to Scripture. Encourage, admonish, and yes, even rebuke at times. I had a friend who, a roommate, and I had no idea. He told me after he had dealt with the sin, he was depressed and had thought about suicide for years when we were in college. And he finally sought counseling from our Bible study leader, who was a seminary student at the time. And the Bible study leader just confronted him on his pride. And my friend said, I never struggled with depression again. We're scared to do that. But we need to stick with the Scriptures. We need to be discerning. We don't bash. We need to be gracious. We need to be uh, there for people. But at the same time, we need to be biblical and not pile on worldly stuff, which is what got them into this type of thinking in the first place. Okay? God is still good. God still loves you. God still has a plan for when He chooses, when you will see Him face to face. We don't take that into our own hands. Okay? Number six. Should married, should married couples in the church have joint bank accounts? Is there anything wrong with having separate accounts or filing taxes separately? This really comes down to if you do that, why? Why do you do that? Um, see, there are many, many reasons why a married Christian couple has different bank accounts. And so it's hard to make a blanket statement and say that's wrong. Okay? I know my, I probably, nobody here or no one you know has done this, but to help you understand that there are unique situations. I opened a separate bank account for my wife a few years ago. And the reason was every time (laughs) she would buy me a gift for Father's Day, my birthday, or Christmas, I would see where she bought it, the amount, and I would guess what it was, and I'd always be right. (laughs) And this really frustrated her. I didn't want to know. I wanted the surprise, so I said... I'm just going to open a separate account, put some money in there. You buy my gifts from there, and I won't know. Now, I know that's a very unique situation, but my point is people have different reasons for doing different things. So I want to give you some couple, a couple clear biblical principles that need to be considered in everything in marriage, including your finances, and they're two very simple ones that you're aware of. First, in marriage there is a unity. The two become one. Genesis 2.24, quoted by Jesus in Matthew 19.5. This isn't just about where you go to church or spiritual things. Once you are married, there should be no, this is mine, this is yours, in a, in a big general sense. Obviously, don't share toothbrushes, things like that. You know what I mean, right? There's no, there shouldn't be me, you, us, them mentality. You share everything because you are now one. So why would you want to separate finances, which is one of the biggest issues in society and within the church and outside of the church, statistically the number one cause of marital issues and divorce? 
The Bible talks about money a lot. The Bible talks about money more than it talks about heaven and hell combined. Because God knows it's going to be a problem for us. So we need to make sure that we view it correctly. So understand, as you look at your bank accounts, as you look at your finances, everything is now not yours, mine, separate. It's ours. Second, in marriage, as you know, there are roles. And the leadership of the husband needs to include finances. That's the biggest practical thing, right? You, we like to, oh, you're Christians, we don't talk about money, but you need money to survive, right? You pay for that roof over your head. You pay for the eggs and cereal that are being digested in your stomach right now. And so the husband needs to be a leader over the family, and that needs to include finances. That doesn't mean he needs to handle all the finances, The wife may just be naturally better at that or trained or an accountant or whatever, but there needs to be headship there um, in fulfillment of the biblical roles in unity in a marriage. All right. Question number seven. I have a friend who cares deeply for others, sometimes uh, sometimes leading him to look more like a Christian than actual Christians, including myself. He is willing to sacrifice nearly everything, his job, etc., to enter disastrous situations, such as Africa during the Ebola crisis and currently Ukraine amidst the war. I don't know his true motives, but it seems his heart for the well-being of others is genuine. Similarly, an unbelieving family member of mine has dedicated her life to a cause that seems righteous. She's forgiven the men who killed her son and spends her days trying to help criminals such as them turn their lives around. Hebrews 11.6 tells us without faith it is impossible to please God, knowing these people are not Christians, but rather sympathetic to various religions and practices. How do I think about their seemingly selfless and forgiving actions rightly? It's a great question. We see people all around us, right, that are not believers, but they do, quote-unquote, good, right? Chances are your doctor's, the board of your local hospital, they're not believers. And you're you're thankful that that hospital exists. Most of your EMTs, firemen, and policemen are not going to be doctors, are not going to be believers, rather, politicians, but we're thankful for them. Maybe not the last one for some of you, but you get what I'm saying, right? So what do we do, right? You got the Zuckerberg Center for Health or whatever. You got all these things that are non-unbelievers donating and healing diseases and finding cures and helping people. Well, let's read Hebrews 11.6, which was mentioned in the question. It says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and, what, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. This is key because God looks at the heart. The unbeliever is depraved. No matter how good they are, no matter how much they do that benefits the world, they cannot please God because God cares about the heart. He doesn't need our external actions. Does He look at our actions? Yes, if they are connected to the right heart attitude. Remember in confronting the Pharisees, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 and Matthew 9.13, and He tells them, learn this and you'll get it. 
I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Again, God looks at the heart. He wants to look at a heart attitude, not just what you're doing externally. The point was to focus on internal morality and God's requirements of the heart rather than external behavior. And Romans 1 and 2 do tell us that all men, even unbelievers, have a conscience. That's part of God's creation and design for the human being. They have a conscience, so they have a sense of right and wrong. That's Romans 1 tells, them, tells us that's one of the reasons they know, if they really think about it, that God exists because a higher power gave them a sense of right and wrong and morality. And so you can see God's creation and the reflection of His character in all men. And I think about just the genius, so, you know, the, 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 the wisdom and intelligence to create our modern technology and skyscrapers. That's a reflection of God. And yes, in God's sovereignty, He does use unbelievers to accomplish His purposes. That's fine. But only the saved can honor God. And so I want to give you a warning. We need to be very careful that we don't go down the road of viewing things from a general, cultural, moral point of view or a social point of view over a biblical view. Because frankly, what is morally right in society changes every two or three generations. You know who's nodding right now? Those with gray hair. Because they get it. What they grew up with now is just unheard of. Right? And what was rated, literally rated X just in the 70s and 80s is now a PG. Okay? So there's a lot of change. And so, um, you know, you just look at society. You, you, I don't need to give you more examples of that. So we need to be careful. We look at things biblically, regardless of what society says, regardless even how we feel, because of anything. Society is not going to change our doctrine before it changes our feelings, our comfort level with the things we say and believe. We can get into dangerous thinking and behavior when we start saying, well, I think things are, it's, it's okay. Like we start justifying dating and eventually marrying an unbeliever. Or start thinking, oh, all roads must lead to heaven if God is love. Or worst of all, questioning God's fairness in His salvation plan. We need to be very careful when we look at these people who seem externally more good or moral than us and start saying, well, that's the standard. That's not the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard, and the reason He's the standard is because we're all sinners. That's the point. Excel still more, but understand you're a sinner. And speaking of salvation in terms of evangelizing such people, the reality is no matter how good they are, they are still sinners. No matter how good you are, you're still a sinner. And so the gospel is needed. Because I, I followed up with this individual. I said, what do you mean? How do we think about that? He said, well, what about an evangelism? Right? Because someone can say, well, I'm a, look what I do. I do more than you do. I don't need God, but that's not the point. We don't get saved so that we can become more good and do more good stuff. We turn to Christ because we need salvation from our sin and its consequences. 
And so how much more someone who's somehow trying to bury that with his great scale of good works, right? They need the gospel. Question number eight. Do Christians need to be careful or skeptical of yoga, other Eastern practices such as Chinese medicine, because of possible or known roots in other religions? Assuming yes, can Christians adopt such practices to their life without honoring false gods? So obviously we're talking about not worshiping at a temple or something like that, just things that are common in this day and age, yoga, ginseng, whatever it may be, right? I will say, and I'll repeat this again later, as a believer, you need to let your conscience be your guide. If you are convicted that is wrong, then don't do it. However, if it is a gray area, you need to be careful that you don't preach that it's sin if the Bible doesn't say it's sin. But I want to explain something. On one side, yes, you have connections to very evil and wicked things. But are you doing that? Are you doing those things? I mean, even, even, you know, maybe some people say, I can do yoga at my gym, but I don't like yoga at this studio where everyone's pressured to say namaste at the end. Then don't go to that place. Here's my, on the other end of the spectrum, here's a problem with this. A lot of what we do has pagan roots. The celebration of Christmas, the celebration of Easter, a lot of pagan roots in there. Even the word Easter is the name of a false goddess. You ever been to a wedding? The veil, the bridesmaids, the bridesmaids all wearing the same dresses, all has pagan roots and has to do with evil spirits. You want to talk about pagan views about evil spirits and life forces? You ever covered your mouth when you yawned? That started, we do it now to be polite, that started because they thought that your life force would come out of your mouth. That's a very unbiblical pagan view. What about our planets? Do we rename our planets? You studied, you know, you studied the various historical religions in high school. Every one of our planets is named after a false god. The names of our days, the names of our months. Some of the actual names, like Friday, are the names of false gods. Do you wear Nikes? Do you go and appreciate that statue of Lady Justice? That's a pagan goddess, a Roman goddess, Justitia. What do we do then? We say, well, I'm... I'm just going to be plead guilty even though I didn't do it because I can't walk in that building because of that false god, goddess that's right there in front of the courthouse. So do we get rid of all of this stuff? Please don't get rid of covering your mouth when you yawn in front of me. <laughs> or can we rejoice that God has redeemed these things and we can use them for His glory? Let me give you an example. As many of you know, I used to live in Albania. I served there. And Albania, I uh, kind of gave it away. I was going to ask, does anyone know what, what historians, 
political scientists and sociologists considered the worst reign of communism that has ever existed. It's Albania. They say it's worse than, worse than North Korea, it's worse than Cuba, worse than China, worse than the former Soviet Union. This guy, the dictator, Enver Hocha, was so communist, and they're poor, he would rather starve and his people starve because then be associated with the USSR and China because since they had relations with places like the United States, he said, you're not true communist, so he broke ties with them. After 40 years, when communism fell, there were, you could count on one hand the number of people who claimed to be Christians. They were Greek Orthodox, and they were all in their 70s and 80s because he had done, there was no underground church like there is in China. He wiped them all out. You would go to a labor camp or be executed simply if your name was in the Bible or the Quran. If you were named Muhammad, if you are named Peter, if you are named John, you die. If you have gone to college, you go to prison. I met a family, and they were close friends, family friends with the dictator. They lived in a mud hut for 30 years that they built themselves in a labor camp. I knew a man who was born in that labor camp. As soon as communism fell, they sent him to my friend in Santa Monica to live in the United States. At 21 years of age, he didn't know how to flip a light switch or turn on a faucet because he had never seen running water. And he only knew how to read because at the risk of death, his parents, uncles, and aunts snuck in books for him to teach him. You want to talk about how do you share the gospel with those people? That same person who lives in Santa Monica now asked me to lead an evangelistic Bible study. I'm sitting there across from people my same age who were born and raised in a labor camp for 30 years. And I need to tell them they're sinners and need Jesus Christ. Now, as in many communist countries, there was a place in the main city, the capital city, called the Communist Block. Some of you have gone on vacation and you've walked on former communist blocks. It's just where the dictator and his higher-ups, his cronies would live. Very nice compared to the rest of the country. Now that communism has fallen, it's now open. And in the middle of that was or is Enver Hoche's former home. That's the dictator. And in that home, right in the, by the front door, is a boardroom. It is undoubtedly where he made decisions to kill people, to execute people, to torture them just because they found a Bible in their home. By the way, Albania, under his leadership, is also the first nation in the history of the world to be constitutionally an atheist country. So there's this house, popular place with the young kids, the block now, all the you know, new clubs and stuff are there. But right in the middle is Enver Hoche's home, And right there in the front is the boardroom where he made decisions to slaughter people, to kill people. And in that room is the room where I taught theology in the first evangelical seminary in the history of the nation. It's also the room where the most solid church in the country met. And I used to tell people, God is proving and showing the world that no matter how much evil happened in this home, He was the victor for eternity, and now we are training the 
seminarians for the first time ever in that country in that very room. Again, let your conscience be your guide, but understand that God can redeem things. But here's the thing. You could take yoga. You could take pagan roots of Christian holidays. You could take Albania and Ember Hocha. But there is a greater, the greatest, most prominent, evil entity in the whole universe that was rooted in paganism. You know what that is? Every Christian that has ever lived. He redeemed you. Let your conscience be your guide, but you've got to look at your heart. Are you worshiping those things? Are you doubting that God could do good out of something that was once bad? I mean, even some of our hymns were old German drinking songs that someone came and converted to use for God's glory. And these things to me are a great picture of salvation in the Christian life. Okay? And I'll say this. If your heart is right and you're worshiping and you're saying that celebrating or practicing these things externally can make your heart wrong, then it's just the reverse of saying someone can work their way to salvation. It's saying works have an influence on your salvation, and they don't. It's a very dangerous hermeneutic. All right. Um, I have one more question. Let me do this really quickly. Could you talk about how Christians might unintentionally discourage both fellow believers and unbelievers through leading them to feel out of place? Unbelievers or new believers might view the church as a self-righteous group or holy club which others can't join. It can be intimidating. How do we guard against this, letting the world know that we're different in Christ, but also relating to them as humans and sinners in need of a Savior? You start with letting them know you're different in Christ. John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By the way, new there means fresh in quality. It wasn't new to them. They knew from the Old Testament that they were to love. They knew from their parents that they were to love. He's saying, I'm going to give you a heightened sense of that. And we understand all that Jesus taught about sacrificial love, agape love. And he says, this is how people will know that you love one another. This is why I've told you as a church, probably not recently, but I've told you as a church, I don't want new visitors leaving our church going, wow, they really loved me. I want them leaving saying, wow, they really loved each other. We focus so much on making visitors feel welcome, which we ought to do, but not to the neglect of the body of Christ that God has given us. It's right there in the Scriptures. This is very important. Being a good testimony is living according to what the Scriptures say. Not what you think people want you to live. It's not what would make them happy or comfortable. It's living what the Scriptures say. It's representing Jesus Christ, which is gracious and kind, by the way. Jesus made it clear that living this way will alienate many. John 15, if the world hates you, 
you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Not discomfort, it's not the world will be uncomfortable with you, they'll hate you. And if you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. You know this verse. That's John 15, 18 through 19. But look at verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. That's how he introduces that the world is going to hate you. Christians love one another. We are not to bend or compromise for the comfort of unbelievers. And friends, God is a big boy. He doesn't need you to apologize for him or apologize for his word. In fact, I would say, don't you dare ever do that. Don't you dare ever apologize for being a Christian or for God being God. How would you like that if you did something and you didn't know anything was wrong and I ran next to someone's like, I'm sorry for what, I'm sorry for that. You'd be like, what are you doing? I didn't do anything wrong. Why would you, it's embarrassing. And yet we do that to God all the time. We can't do that. In regard to relating to them, you relate to them through the gospel. Again, sinners in need of Christ as we are, be true to the Lord and God will handle the rest. Okay? You be true to the Lord and God will handle the rest. Now, if you're just rude, you need to deal with that, right? If your words are discouraging, Ephesians 4.29, you need to repent of that, right? This is not like, well, okay, so you're saying like as long as, you know, just be a Christian jerk. No, be a Christian and be nice about it, be loving and gracious. And I'll close with this. We need to watch out for the fear of man, which includes adjusting church or lifestyle for the sake of the world, even if it's under the guise of making people feel more willing to come and hear the truth because the seeker movement tried that and we know how that's going. Not very well. Okay? Be faithful to the Word. God will bless that. Great questions. If you have more already, go ahead and uh, submit them online, website, QR code, or physically in the, in the box. Uh, it's all there on your bulletin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the clarity of Your Word that gives us guidance and truth to live from everything from the gospel to evangelism to practical things like yoga and weddings. Help us to be people who continue to seek Your Word for everything. And may we live it out regardless of whether we like the answers or not. May we be true to your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together as we close in song.